0: 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may deso- devote yourselves to prayer, but then come, come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take your seats. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see all your happy faces this morning. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, obviously, and today... Uh, we hit a passage that is a topic often not discussed in the church. And as I've told you guys, late summer going through the fall, we're going to be tackling topics that. The church is really struggling with. So today, of course, we're talking about human sexuality within marriage. Just a heads up for those of you that have children in here, uh, not to be provocative, but the sermon this morning will be uh, PG-14-ish in my estimation, PG-13-ish. My daughters are in here this morning. And so if you don't want to have uncomfortable conversations that you're not ready for uh, with your kids, uh, you can go ahead and sneak out the back right now. We're also going to be talking about politics in the coming season, and we're going to be talking about race reconciliation in the church, and so lots of uh, light Sunday morning fair as we approach the fall, talking about politics and race and human sexuality and just really trying to be God's people in this culture, a missionary people incarnating the grace of God. So with that said, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's, sorry, I'm a child of the 90s, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, These topics are often not discussed in churches. They're either taboo or too uncomfortable or too awkward. But the Bible is very clear about human sexuality. And we, Lord, believe with all of our hearts that you are making us fully human. Father, we believe that you have purposes for us in our marriages that bring glory to your name. We believe, Father, that you want to fill us with a fullness of joy and a fullness of peace and a fullness of pleasure. And so we exalt you, God, asking you to guide us. Father, for the singles in the room who may think that this sermon has nothing to do with them, would you prepare their hearts? Should you call them to marriage, may they have this sermon locked into their brains. May this scripture be guiding them as they think about sexuality within marriage. Father, for those who are struggling in this room, marriage is difficult. I pray that this sermon would be a turning point, that this scripture right here would be a turning point in their marriage where they would find themselves saying, here's where we've been roadblocked. Here's where we've been running into obstacles and that today you would liberate their marriages. Father, we pray as we have prayed in this church for years now for piles and piles of babies. And we thank you that you're answering that prayer. But beyond procreation and the multiplying of children and families in this culture, we pray for an understanding of human sexuality that brings health and joy to our culture. Father, for those who have been robbed and ripped and torn apart by sexual promiscuity, today may you bring healing and may God's people be a centerpiece of what the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven will be like fully human, fully devoted, fully committed, fully filled with joy and grace and mercy guiding us daily. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. In the early 80s, a man who went by the name Michelle rose up in the West Hollywood Hills, and he began to gather young actors and fitness instructors and models all in their 20s to 30s. He donned himself the teacher, and he established a following of about 200 folks, and they became what was known as the Buddha Fields. These West Hollywood actors and fitness instructors and models, beautiful people living out in the woods of California, hugging and loving each other and seeking insight from the teacher, this man, Michelle. At the core of this cult was the teaching of sexual abstinence. It was taught that you are closer to enlightenment. You are more godly, quote unquote, if you abstain from any form of human sexuality. Now, a member who left the cult was quoted, and I'm paraphrasing him, basically saying, it was completely insane. You've got 20-year-old beautiful people all fit kissing and hugging and loving each other in bikinis and speedos out in the woods, and Michelle, the teacher, saying, sex is bad. All the while, every one of us was having sex with everybody else, just not telling the teacher. Now, the cult came to a collapse in the early 2000s when stories began to rise up about this teacher, this cult leader, Michelle. Turns out he was actually a gay porn star. Men began coming forward who described, essentially, rape. Years on end of sexual abuse from this man who would manipulate them and control them. He was a trained hypnotherapist. Women began to come forward saying that Michelle had forced them to have abortions after they had become pregnant. The cult finally collapsed with all of these stories culminating in the dispersion of a large group of them, but sadly, Michelle, the teacher, went on to Hawaii, and at the end of the documentary that my wife and I were watching on this man, he has gained a new following in Hawaii and has begun this process all over again. Cults always define themselves, and they always find their salvation in any other thing other than Jesus. We had a cult here in Seattle in the mid-80s as well called Community Chapel, where the teaching drifted from Jesus and the Holy Spirit to strange spiritual connections that led to divorce and other oddities that dispersed that cult when all these stories began to come out. Cults always frame up their teaching on sexuality, either around licentiousness or legalism. That sex is the means by which we gain holiness Or abstention from sex is the means by which we gain enlightenment. And the church in Corinth, as we're studying them, were being influenced by the cultic practices surrounding them in the culture. We remember that the temple of Aphrodite was up on the hill overlooking the city where temple prostitutes would be frequented by the men of the city as an act of worship. And so the cult practices of the culture of Corinth, licentiousness and temple prostitution, was influencing the church. We dealt with that last week. As Paul said, sexual immorality, no, 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 no. That's going to do damage to your souls. But there was the cult of abstention as well within the city of Corinth and within the church of Corinth. There was a group within that little community, within that first church in Corinth, who began to believe the lie that throughout human history we have believed We can make ourselves holy by what we do or by what we don't do. And so Paul is confronting this idea, this lie, that by abstaining from sex within the community, within marriage even, one can make themselves more enlightened, more holy. And what Paul understood was this. As we look at this passage today and deal with sex very frankly, very biblically, Paul understood that teaching abstention from sex would not guard the flock from immorality, but like the Buddha fields, would actually increase immorality. Teaching abstention from sex, simply saying no, thinking of sex as dirty and dangerous and avoiding the topic altogether does not do away with sexual immorality. It actually increases it. It flames the fires of it. And so Paul, as a loving pastor, as a loving parent of this church of his, comes and he says, look, we've dealt with sexual immorality and licentiousness in our community. Now let's deal with this issue of sexual abstention and this Teaching of no sex even within marriage because that's going to do damage to your hearts as well. Topic for this morning, learning to celebrate sex within marriage. And as I prayed for us, remember if you're single in this room and God calls you to marriage, this is a scripture that you should just plant in your heart and let it prepare you for your husband, for your wife. And for you married couples, I do pray that this is, for maybe some of you, a real turning point in your marriages today. So let's look at the topic at hand, celebrating sex and marriage, beginning here in verse 1, and let's look at this issue that they were dealing with. There's a quote that Paul reminds them of. They were writing letters to Paul, asking him spiritual questions, and he was returning. That's what the letter of Corinth is, answers to their questions in their letters. So here in verse 1, now considering the manners that you wrote to me about, Paul says, you have this quote going around in your church. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Someone or some group within the church in Corinth had begun teaching, maybe within home gatherings, hey, if you want to be really holy, if you want to be close to Jesus, sex is dirty. Sex is dangerous. You should stop doing that, even if you're married. Human history has established without question that the human heart has a propensity to define holiness by what we don't do. And because sex is so powerful, because sex is so intimate, because sex has such gravity to it, sin and Satan twists sex in degree, teaching us wrongly that to deny ourselves sexual fulfillment and sexual satisfaction is actually a good thing. We see this throughout the history of the church. John Chrysostom who was one of the early church fathers, wrote this, virginity stands as far above marriage as the heavens stand above the earth. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate for us, he was essentially the progenitor of what would become our modern Bible translation, said, all those who have not remained virgins, following the pattern of the pure chastity of angels and that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, are polluted, <laughs> Even Augustine, who is really, I would argue, the most influential theologian of both Roman Catholic and Protestant tributaries of Christianity, would say, marriage is not good. (laughs) He said, it is good in comparison with fornication. But Augustine would go on and say, continence, he says, is an angelic exercise. So we see this layered throughout the history of humanity. We see this layered through cult teachings, and we see this layered in the teachings of even the church, that to abstain from sex gives you some greater holiness. In the church, we tend to and can still adopt certain practices, certain ideas about human sexuality that run course with history. There's two reasons for this. We don't necessarily say out loud, abstain from sex, but we certainly find ourselves thinking of sex as dangerous, think of sex as bad. And I want to give you two reasons why, just so maybe we can search our own hearts and how we think about sex personally as Christians. Number one, historically the church has suppressed any talk about sex, and that really influenced the culture. Do you guys remember Leave It to Beaver? Like Leave It to Beaver was before my day, but I can remember watching reruns of Leave It to Beaver and Ward and June slept in different beds. And I found myself watching this show going, that's stupid. Why are they doing that? There was a cultural suppression of the previous generation and particularly in and from the church suppressing any talk about sex. And what that produced was the sexual powder keg of the 60s, the sexual revolution, where anyone with common sense looking at Warden June Cleaver would say, that's silly, that's not reality, that's not what's going on. We're going to throw off these restraints that are ridiculous in our minds. Reason number one, that the church still can fall prey to teaching abstinence from sex is because of the cultural suppression of talking about it, being honest about it, being real with it. The sexual revolution of the 60s led us to where we are today, what sociologists and demographers are calling the moral revolution. And I can tell you as a leader in the church approaching 40, my head is literally spinning with how quickly the transformation has occurred within our culture on the morals and understanding of not only sexual behavior, but gender as we understand it defined biologically. The second reason that the church can Unconsciously adopt a negative view of sex is because we are knee jerk reacting to an over sexualized culture. Parents and pastors living in this over sexualized culture are constantly saying what you saw on TV was bad. What they're doing in the movies is bad. What they're doing in the magazines is bad. What that person is blogging about, that's bad. What you're watching on your computer, that's bad. And because we are reacting to an over-sexualized culture, the constant negative connotations of sexuality within the church can swell up within the church, and we can unconsciously adopt this mind frame about human sexuality. The minute I say sex, all of us immediately have a a reaction of dirty, dangerous, misused, perverted, don't, don't. Just as an aside, much of the counseling that my wife and I do with young couples in their first year of marriage, we're trying to walk that young guy through forgiveness of pornography, and we're trying to walk that young girl through the reality of, it's okay now. It's all right. Because it's been so planted in our kind of spiritual character, all this negative talk and all this negative reaction to the over-sexualized culture around us, that we adopt this, no, it's dangerous, it's defiling, it's dirty, it's bad don't. And so Paul is addressing this head on and he's going to give to them three admonitions in the context of marriage to encourage human sexuality as God always defined it. Remember we talked last week that human sexuality and sexual behavior is like a fire, When it's contained within the morality and the rules and regulations of how God designed it to be operated in, it warms the heart and warms the house and it's useful and it can cook food. It does all these amazing things. But if you unleash fire out of its restraints, it burns the house down and kills people. So three admonitions this morning that Paul gives to the Corinthian church in pushing back against this cultish type teaching that sex is dangerous, sex is dirty, don't have sex. Number one this morning, he says, delight Corinthian church and delight Taproot church in the duty of sex. We read this here in verse two, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That Greek context there and the Greek syntax there, have his own wife, have her own husband, is a Greek euphemism. Paul is literally saying each man in the church should be having sex with his wife and each wife should have her own husband who is satisfying her, meeting her needs, being with her, growing with her, serving her. This is what Paul is commanding the church to do. Those of you that haven't been married for longer than three months aren't going to believe a word of what I'm about to say, but (laughs) sex in marriage can become very difficult in certain seasons. The first three months that you're married, it is a free-for-all frat sorority party. It is insane. Anytime you get alone, things go completely crazy, and that's good, right? But familiarity can breed contempt for delight and desire, As the months and the years wane on, you add some kids to the mix, which makes sex almost virtually impossible. (laughs) You add a stressful career, you add a 50-hour week, and by the time you hit the pillow at night, at 10.30 a.m., or at 10.30 p.m., you look at each other, (sighs) and you're done. And so sex slowly because of familiarity, sex slowly because of the chaos of our lives, Can drift from being a great delight, something that we are passionate about and committed to and excited to be having, to duty, to drudgery, to don't. Non existent. Paul says here that the duty of sex within marriage is actually a discipline. Think of sex, older married couples, or maybe even for some of you younger married couples that are still learning the pathways of sexual behavior in marriage. Think of it like a discipline. Sometimes we fast and pray, even when we don't want to, Sometimes we get into the Word. Sometimes we come to Sunday morning when the kids are going absolutely nuts and we've had a terrible week and we're exhausted, and we just know that we need to get into that Sunday morning setting where we can sing to Jesus regardless of how we feel, listen to a sermon on sex, which is going to lift our hearts right up. Sometimes we have to be disciplined. And I know as Alexis and I approach, our 15th year of marriage Discipline is an important part of all of our Christianity, including our intimacy within marriage. Discipline in Christianity always leads to delight. Let me say that again. Discipline duty, the discipline of praying and fasting and coming to Sunday mornings and getting into the word of God and intentionally making space for intimacy with our spouses, though it may feel like drudgery, though it may be a discipline, though initially it may be a duty, I guarantee you it leads to delight. And listen to this. The interesting thing about the power of sex is it is very, very difficult not to be emotive and connected in the midst of sexual behavior with your spouse. If there is bad or difficult things at hand, sometimes the discipline of sex is actually the release valve. It's what brings you to liberation. It's what brings you the highest joy. In fact, just for all you scientists in the room, there are a number of biological studies right now that are showing one of the main cures for a headache, sex. (laughs) We as Christians, as we're maturing in our marriages must make an intentional decision to exercise the discipline of human sexual behavior in the midst of what God has given us as a gift. Just like prayer, just like fasting, just like being in the Word. I bet you nine months from now, we're going to have a ton of babies, huh? (laughs) Three notes on this, three notes that I want to highlight for you guys. Number one, from this little passage, Paul's commands are actually liberating for women, Many in our culture who observe Christianity from the outside, and sadly many even from the inside, think of Christianity as being oppressive to women, ruling over women, subjugating women. Paul's commands here were scandalous. New Testament scholar Dave Garland writes, eight times he painstakingly repeats in full his instructions or statements about both the male and the female, the male's relationship to the female and the female's relationship to the male. This was scandalous in Paul's day. In Paul's day, it was common knowledge. It was given that a wife was owned by her husband. She was to subjugate herself to him. And Paul comes along, the first influential thinker of this time period, the only one we can find in the historical record of this time period, and he says, Husbands you own your wives, you have your wives, they are yours, be with them. And then Paul turns it on his head gender-wise and he says, wives, you are liberated. You are equal in value and dignity. You have your husband. You be with him. This was absolutely scandalous. Guys, Christianity is the seedbeds for the liberation of women, not the subjugation of women. And if you'll just do Small historical study, studies, those of you that think that Christianity has subjugated women, if you'll just do small historical studies, you'll begin to see the very foundations of women's liberation and, lib, and equality in society is rooted in the New Testament. It's rooted in the words of Jesus. It's rooted in the words of Paul. Number two, highlight from these commands, a spiritual point here. Both Male and female are tempted equally to sexual immorality. Both. Traditionally, we've always understood that the male is the carouser out sowing his wild oats while women are at home being pure. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Listen to all the laughter of the women in this room. (laughs) Watching your soap operas. No, I'm being stereo. I'm sorry. That was a bad stereotype joke. If you're new here, please forgive me, that was a joke. Listen, men and women are tempted equally to sexual immorality, and I think if we're gonna honor the new kind of gender formation and gender understanding, we need to realize that men are just as easily entangled emotionally in affairs as are women with no sex. Men can just as easily find themselves tangled up with a woman in the workplace or in a career path or in a relationship that is an emotional affair that has no sex involved in it at all, And statistically speaking, women using pornography and women leaving their husbands for other men has been on the rise for 20 years now. And so men and women are tempted equally to sexual immorality. And so Paul commands, be disciplined in your sexual behavior and your marriages for the sake of this sexual immorality and fighting it. And then thirdly, and this is a physical point that I want to make. Though it may feel awkward for some of us, I think it's an important point that Paul makes Ladies, you are invited to develop your libido. Now, I'm going to make this very serious so that we feel the weight of this. Because our culture has so objectified and so humiliated women in the way that we have used women sexually, for many women, sex is immediately something that is dirty and dangerous One in three of you have been sexually molested, which means that you are working through deeply entrenched primal realities that are very difficult to overcome. You have triggers that are there. Some of you have been raped in this room. Some of you have lived promiscuously and you feel like your soul is torn apart. Suffice it to say, whether it's the legalism or the licentiousness of church culture or societal culture, Women come to their marital beds with all of this complexity in place. And to top it all off, the cherry on top is body image, wherein body image is the great morality of a woman. A woman is to define herself by the way she looks, and what she looks at in the magazines and the movies certainly doesn't look like what she looks like in the mirrors. And so to be naked before her husband and with her husband is overwhelming. And so, libido, that is God, God, God grant, grant, granted and God given and God granted, oh, that is a sexual desire in women. A desire to be pleased, a desire to be served and satisfied, a desire to explore, a desire for all of these things. God has given that to you as women. Some scholars think that the Song of Solomon was actually written by a woman, and it is gnarly. <laughs> This lady is in love with her man and she is unashamed and she wants what she wants when she wants it. And she knows how she wants it. And so there are therapies, counselors, there are books, there are means and ways by which the discipline of developing sexual libido should be engaged in as a Christian lady. Starting with, hey, I'm of equal value and dignity with my husband And I own him. I want him to give me what is mine. Amen, brothers? (laughs) Develop this. A discipline for Christian ladies might be becoming more comfortable with who God has made you. Brothers, your wife is the standard of beauty. Period. Your wife is the standard of sexual attraction. Period. For you... To make her feel that way, you need to live that way and be intentional about those things. Now, this becomes a much more private one-on-one counseling session. Not appropriate for a sermon, but I hope that the point has been lodged in your minds. Ladies, develop your libido is inherent in this passage in Paul's commands. Now, we move on to a very, very provocative point here. Number two, Paul says, To celebrate sex in marriage... You've got to obey your owner. I walked in testing this on my wife. <laughs> it's like three days ago. I go, hey, Lex, what do you think about if I, if I say point number two is obey your owner? And she looks at me, she's like, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I using such provocative language? We're going to flesh this out so nobody freaks out and walks out on me. But listen. I'm using provocative language like this because I think that the cultural aquarium that we swim in has really messed with the nature of what marriage is in its essence. Christian marriage. The culture has reframed marriage where marriage now is what you are going to give to me. Okay? Okay? So my mentality is, you fulfill me. Marriage vows are always, you satisfy me. You make me so happy. I see butterflies and blue skies when I'm with you all the time. Basically saying, whatever you do for me is for me, and it fulfills me, and it satisfies me. The great fault in that is at some point, the butterflies get stepped on, and we live in Seattle, and it starts raining again. They don't satisfy you. They don't fulfill you. All that sexual libido and desire becomes drudgery. And now, rather than being owned by the other one who you gave your life to, that's what Christian marriage vows are. I vow to give all of myself to you unconditionally. Culturally, we say, you no longer satisfy me. You no longer meet my desires. You no longer make me who I'm supposed to be. And so we leave the marriage Christian marriage in its essence, I've been trying to distill this down for years now, but one of the core components of healthy Christian marriage is the entire mind frame is you own me. Now, the fact that we swim in this culture aquarium, I can tell there's feathers being ruffled right now. Oh my gosh, I can't believe he's saying that out loud. How scandalous, how oppressive. No, 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 no. God designed it this way because God owns us, gave himself for us that he might have us completely. Marriage is a reflection of that. And when a Christian spouse adopts the attitude that I am owned by my spouse... My life now is vowed to meet their needs, to satisfy, to seek, to serve, for them to become who God wants them to be. When that mentality is adopted under the gospel of a loving, benevolent, kind, sacrificial God that does all that is necessary to bring human flourishing, when that attitude is adopted, marriages begin to flourish and fights begin to become less common. Friendship flourishes in that context, and human sexual behavior in that context flourishes greatly. I'm going to confront something head-on, because I think it's a source of unhealth in our lives. Married couples in communities that have separate budgets, separate sets of friends... Separate plans, patterns, like patterns of separate plans without each other and then come together to be roommates that pay for each other's house or satisfy each other are on a trajectory towards divorce. Married couples that say, my money is owned by you. My friends are owned by you. You have authority over my body and my friends and my budget and my my calendar. Married couples that say, this Life is now your life, are on a trajectory really to fulfillment. I know it sounds counterintuitive. I know that we've bought the lies of our culture around us, but to embrace this backwards mentality on marriage actually brings about fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. The very thing that we're longing for is found in this self-sacrificial, counterintuitive way. Now, I want to ferret out this idea of ownership within marriage and make it very, very clear before things get oppressive and culty and weird in our church, okay? So, I realize that some of the men in this room right now may be saying, Yes, finally, this is awesome. Pastor Danny says, and the scriptures say, that I have authority over her body. And so, you being the, 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 the full of desire and passion man that you are, you approach your wife, uh, maybe tomorrow evening and, uh, or tomorrow afternoon, and you say, You know, honey, that passage yesterday is just ruminating in my heart. And, you know? I would really like you to meet my needs tomorrow night or tonight. To which the wife, having heard this sermon, says, My body is yours. I'm going to delight in that. I can't wait to do that. Amen, brothers? (laughs) To which she then says, Oh, but Pastor Danny and the Apostle Paul said that Christianity liberated women, which means that I equally own you. So here's what I'd like you to do. I am so happy to meet your desires tonight. In fact, I'm going to rejoice in that. But because I own you, before tonight comes, I'd like that pile of dishes done. I'd like you to head downstairs and help me fold up that laundry. Would you change baby Joe's diaper before we get to tonight? By the way, because I own you, I'd like you to organize somebody to watch the kids, take me to that Italian place, fill me up with pasta, wine, and candlelight conversation, look into my eyes, connect with my feelings, because I own you, I have authority over you. To which men, you respond, I can't wait to do that. <laughs> I delight in that. <laughs> what I'm trying to express here is ownership and authority in the, in the life of a marriage. It crosses over genders. You each own each other, and it's an all of life. So the desires that you want met first must be subjugated to the desires that she wants met. And ladies, the desires that you first want met must be subjugated to his desires. When the two of you are thinking that way, crazy stuff happens. Wine flows like a river. Pasta is eaten. Candlelight conversation happens. And women are satisfied and full and emotionally met with. And human sexual behavior in those contexts becomes amazing. Amazing. Sex is a thermometer of a marriage. It's not a thermostat. Let me make this point very clearly. Sex is a microcosm of the whole marriage. What I mean by that is if from sunrise to the time you go to bed at night, the marriage is in a healthy place where you're serving each other, you're meeting each other's emotional needs, you're doing the dishes, you're changing the baby's diapers, you're helping fold laundry, you're not sitting on the couch like a lump, you're leading your children. i I'm not going to speak for my wife, but I think she finds me very, very attractive when I lead our kids in Bible study. When I'm leading my home spiritually, it's almost like I grew Fabio hair back. I just look so good. <laughs> kids, let's have Bible study. <sighs> my hair flows. Chest puffs out. You like the Jesus storybook Bible, babe? Babe. All right, let's get back on track. This is a very serious church, very serious topic. You guys quit messing around. Gosh, what in the world were we talking about? Thermostat and, thermostat and thermometer. thermometer, thank you very much. So from morning to sunset, if the marriage is hot, meaning dishes are being done and service is happening and friendship is happening... Gentlemen, you're learning to actually listen to what she's saying. And no, I'm never going to challenge you or tell you that you're going to understand what she's saying. But you're listening and you're getting it and you're walking with her. And you're doing everything you can to connect with her. And ladies, through that day, you're seeking to honor and, and make him feel like he's a knight in shining armor. I guarantee you the temperature rises through the day. And at night, it's, it's not, a oh, man, no, we've got to make this happen. You've connected, and now the sweetest, most intimate place of expression of love and unity happens. Sex therapy has to start with doing the dishes and changing the kids' diapers, fellas. Ladies, sex therapy starts with, even if you're in a place where you're having a hard time respecting him, if you can make him feel like he's a knight in shining armor, he will be he will become that for you we feel that pressure believe me we want to ride in on the horse with our sword and save our damsels in distress it's what we're wired to do and finally before we close this point this idea of ownership in marriage as i already alluded to it is based wholly on the gospel It's based on reflecting the God who benevolently, self-sacrificially, with kindness and tenderness and gentleness gave all of himself for us. This is not oppressive misogyny. This is not tyranny. This is not subjugation. This is not dictatorship. This this is not despots controlling one another, fighting for terrain in their marriages. This is the fullness of my God gave everything for me so I can freely give all to him. And in giving all to him, this man, this woman in front of me that is my spouse, out of obedience and duty and discipline and delight, I give all of myself. I give all of myself. Finally, we close this sermon this morning with constraint and celebration is always by consent. It's always by consent. Read there with me in verse 5. Don't deprive one another. Don't constrain each other from sex, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Deprivation of sexuality in marriage is always by consent. Sex is never to be a tool to manipulate your partner or punish them. It's a never, if you do this, I may do this. Or I'm going to withhold sex from you because I'm, I'm upset with you. Now, I recognize the emotional complexities. I realize how virtually impossible it is to enjoy intimacy when you've just had a huge fight. But if sex becomes a pattern of punishment or manipulation in your marriage... That thermometer to me is saying that the rest of the marriage needs some work. There needs to be communication and conflict counseling. There needs to be an understanding of the gospel and forgiveness. There needs to be service. There needs to be a reorienting of you own me in the mind frame. Okay. So deprivation of sex is always by consent. And Paul puts in this strange thing that I've been meditating on for years and still can't figure out. To pray. So I've likened it in these last few years actually to the idea of fasting and prayer. So we, di- we, we deny ourselves food for short seasons, sometimes in upwards of 30 days, to devote ourselves to prayer. And I suppose, full disclosure, I've, we've never done this, you could fast from physical pleasures of sex, and every time those desires rise up in either one of you, you've committed for a 10-day pa- span of time or a 30-day span of time to deny those pleasures and pursue prayer, pursue God in those times. But Paul says, don't do that for a long time. Paul makes very clear, if you drift into this idea that now you're being more holy because you're not having sex, you're actually going to drift into sexual immorality. Satan is going to come and he's going to twist those prayers into some weird stuff, and you're going to land in some weird places. So return to the discipline of human sexuality, and I'll close our time together with this. The celebration of sex is always by consent. Sex within marriage, when a woman says no, is rape. And it is legally binding in a court that you are prosecuted as a rapist. As a rapist. Even now, if there are ladies in this room who are enduring such horrific abuse, there are ways out. And if he is intimidating you, and seeking to constantly manipulate you and you feel like you have no freedom, there are men in this church that you can approach, myself included, secretly, by email, by a phone call, and you can disclose the silent suffering that you've been enduring and let other men come in and help take care of these situations. Sex within marriage, whether it's constrained or celebrated, is always by consent The ownership is, you own me by consent. Now, there are certainly seasons where constraint is required. After having a baby, times of the month, many women are in severe pain at one time in the month. Men, you can do no greater sexual service to your wife than abstaining. There are, I'm not going to sit up here and paint this ridiculous picture of human sexual behavior. There are nights where you literally have a headache, and the idea of your husband saying, you know, a headache is fixed by sex is going to make you rip his head off. (laughs) Gentlemen, you can honor those nights. Ladies, there is this weird transition that happens like after year 10 of marriage where there are nights, it's like the, the ladies are, the libido is high and the fella is just like, I've been working all day, I'm tired, the kids are making me crazy. There are times where constraint is actually honoring the sexual narrative of the marriage. There really is. The Holy Spirit will lead you in that. My sole purpose in using such jarring language this morning and such frank language was to rip off the facade that so many Christians live in in their marriage where where sex is non-existent because the friendship and that relational ownership way down deep in the marriage is non-existent. All of this has its roots, of course, of course, in our good and loving and intimate God. The God who said, you've torn yourselves to shreds, but I'm not angry with you. You've used and abused each other. You've used and abused my creation, but I'm not forsaking you. All of this has its roots in the good news of God saying, I want to heal you. I want you to experience sexual union as I designed it, as a picture of my relationship with you. I want you to inhabit such a space of fullness. And yes, there's going to be struggle, but God through the gospel says, I sent my son to have you. So turn towards me. The language of the Bible and the commands that I've given you in the Bible are not to harm you. They are to bring healing to you. And we know that because Jesus on the cross was stripped naked, taking our shame, taking our defilement, taking our dirtiness, taking all these things, and now he clothes us, as we talked last week, in a white robe of purity, in a wedding dress of holiness. So we are his. Sexual therapy in our marriages begins in prayer and at the foot of the cross. How weird is that? How strange is that? That the cross influences the most intimate places of our lives and our marriages that the gospel is what brings healing to those spaces and to those places. Christians at Taproot Church with the Apostle Paul, I exhort you this morning, celebrate sex in marriage, delight in the duty of sex, obey your owner, constrain and celebrate by consent because Jesus Christ was crucified for your sin. You're forgiven and he's alive. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory this morning and we thank you for sex within marriage. We ask, God, that here in our church, as we've talked about these things, frankly, and as we delve into difficult topics in these coming months, not only human sexuality and sexual behavior, but the politics that we're dealing with, race reconciliation, Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher and to be our comforter. I want to pray, Lord, for the ladies and the men in this room who endured sexual perversion either in their childhood or even later in life through molestation and rape these sermons are trigger points for them may they run to the cross today where defilement is removed where you comfort them where you remind them that i'm not harming you i'm going to use even this for healing in the world lord i pray for our singles so many singles in this church, Lord, and they are longing to get married. They're praying for their spouses. I'm praying for the singles in this room. I'm praying for my daughters and my son, that they, would, that they would constrain themselves for the glory of God and for the health of their own souls. I pray for their spouses, Lord. I pray that their spouses, Father, would be pure and holy and chaste and that we would be a community of people. Though we're small, though we're marginalized and we believe strange things, we believe, God. Help us to be a community of people that show the world what the kingdom will be like as we abstain from sex if we're single. And for the married, precious couples in this church, Lord, so many young families in this church, so many young marriages, so many marriages, Lord, that are 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Some, Lord, that to to your glory are, are hitting their stride at 50 years of being together. God, I pray that the thermostat in their marriage would be reading 100 plus Starting with doing the dishes, changing the baby's diaper, being disciplined and making time to get away, to rent a hotel, even for a night away from the kids. Lord, I pray that our home gatherings, the singles in our home gatherings and in our small groups would look at the married couples and say, you know what, we're going to take the kids. You guys, we're taking the kids to to ice cream. You guys have three hours. (laughs) Father, I pray that you would lay that on the hearts of the singles. It's... It's good, Lord, that we can laugh about these things. It's good that we can be with you. You're our friend. You're our father. You're not ashamed of these things. For the married couples, I pray for a burning fire in their friendships, a burning fire in their commitments. God, some of these couples are at roadblocks. They've just been at odds, and they have been fighting with each other. Turn their hearts this morning under the friendship of Jesus to friendship with each other and fellowship with each other light fires in the marriages of this community. May they disciple young singles and young married couples. May those that are 30, 40, 50 years into the journey, may they see that young married couple who who look like deer in the headlights. Oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? May these older couples take these younger couples and take them out to dinner and just say, hey, how's it going? May this be a community of discipleship and mentorship and the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I'm pleading with you that the marriages of Taproot Church, mine included, would make it the long haul all the way to the end. As I get older, I'm I'm almost desperate, Jesus. I am literally desperate to see marriages and leaders make it all the way to the end. Lord, we confess our sin to you this morning. Corporately as a church, we confess selfishness. We confess seeking to use the other in a way that is only self fulfilling rather than other fulfilling we confess forgetting the goodness of the gospel we confess forgetting that we are loved infinitely and unconditionally we confess religion we confess trying to be holy by what we don't do and we confess christ our lord christ our savior in the midst of communion where the the veil between heaven and earth thins, spirit come and transform these hearts transform these marriages May these marriages leave a legacy of children and grandchildren and great grandchildren that love Jesus. God, I'm praying for my son's church and my grandson's church and my great grandson's church that these small pockets of believers would be lights, cities on hills in every community across the globe, and we're praying for revival. So as we come to communion this morning, may we sense the presence of Jesus and be one with our spouse. May there be a sense of unity a sense of forgiveness, a sense of letting go, no longer trying to restrain the anger, but just releasing that unto the cross of Jesus. Lord, for the ladies that maybe are scared right now, they're suffering from physical pain, or they're just overwhelmed by this whole thing, God, may they, may they pursue you in prayer. If there's physical issues, may they seek out a, a doctor, a gynecologist that can serve them and help them. May you give the men and women in this room understanding in how to serve each other. And so we yield ourselves to entirely, Father God. Bless us in this time of worship. In Jesus' name.